Well, in our exposition this morning of uh, 1 Peter, we've come to chapter 4. Our focus is on verses 7 through 9. Before I read these verses, I want you to realize uh, an important principle in life, that the anticipation of a future event should change your life today. The anticipation of a future event should change your life today. Like, for instance, there are abundant, abundant illustrations of this, but here are some. If you're a student, the test tomorrow is going to change your life tonight. You won't be watching television this evening. You'll spend it studying. I know school is out. That's maybe a bad illustration, but that's the case. If you're planning to go on vacation early tomorrow morning, you'll spend the rest of the day packing and try desperately to get to bed early tonight so that you can get off and get going. If you're hosting a Bible study this evening in your home, you're going to spend the afternoon cleaning up and arranging the chairs to get ready. If it's Christmas Eve and you're a child, it's going to change the way you sleep tonight. If you're taking a a fasting blood test in the morning, you make sure you don't eat anything after midnight. We go on and on and on about different ways in which future planned action affects life today. I respond differently. And you know what? If you don't anticipate the future appropriately, it can lead to problems. You can flunk your test or miss your flight or miss some sales opportunity. We had a perfect illustration of this in our house yesterday. The story begins two years ago, maybe three, I'm not exactly sure, but think back several years ago. Um, We have this window in our our bedroom. Any of you have seen the front of our house? We have, I think, two casement windows and then this big arching, I call it a crescent window above it. I don't think that's the proper name, but a a nice big window in front. And uh, about two or three years ago, I, I forget, uh, one of the casement windows had, had a problem. And, you know, it was so long ago, I don't remember exactly what the problem was. But somehow I think the hinge fell off of it and the, the window almost fell out of uh, our up two-story um, bedroom where it is. And I just remember kind of getting the hinge, taking it off, putting the window there and <laughs> screwing the window in so it's not there. And we have managed these last two or three years, whatever it is, with... Uh, with one window that opens. Uh, I looked for a replacement hinge, couldn't really find one. I looked into replacing the entire window. It was a bit on the expensive side. and I, I figured we're getting along just fine with this one window that opens. It gets the air through. Wonderful. But you know what? I, I really should have been working on replacing that window. Uh, in fact, even about a, a week ago, I had a conversation with somebody <clears throat> found out that he does odd construction jobs for a living. I said, so you do windows? He said, yeah. I said, well, maybe... Maybe I'll have you over to my house. I got this big window that really, really should be replaced. And, um, so I talk, but did I call him? I didn't call him. Here's a future event I didn't anticipate very well. Well, this brings us to yesterday. Uh, Yvonne and my family were gone for several days. They uh, went to the Illinois Christian Home Educators something conference in Naperville. A bunch of homeschoolers getting together. Massive conference. Lots of people. She's gone Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Took everyone except SR. It was a bachelor pad this week for a couple of days. But anyway, she's coming home. Her kids are, are noticing something's dreadfully wrong with her house. They said, uh, the, the, it's falling down. 
And um, so I hear the car rolling in and uh, frantically cleaning up the last bit of the kitchen. And Yvonne's coming in, and I'm, I'm expecting a, a kiss. I've not seen her for a couple of days. And she says this. This is the best I can remember. Steve, you'd better come now or we'll have to replace that window today. And it's like 4 o'clock, 6 o'clock at night, something like that. I didn't know what she was talking about, but I followed her in her wake, right? The jet stream kind of just pulled me along as she was streaming up the, up the stairs. And I looked there, and her window was cracked, and it was torqued, and it was, it was really falling out. It's a minor miracle that the window didn't just crash out and break and smash entirely. Well... To make a long story short, both sides of our casement window are now screwed shut. (laughs) And I'm going to be making a phone call tomorrow. There's something I didn't anticipate the future correctly. And now I'm paying the the consequences. In our text this morning, Peter is going to speak about this future event that you need to anticipate that should change your behavior today. And your neglect of these things may well have a large impact upon your life and upon the life of the church. Let me read now 1 Peter 4, 7-9. through 9. As I read it, I want you to find the event he's talking about in the future and then find how it ought to change our lives. It's pretty simple. Verse 7, The end of all things is near, therefore be a sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Well, Peter begins this section with an anticipation of the end of the world. Or to use his word, the end of all things. This idea doesn't come out of nowhere. In verse 5, Peter had mentioned this day of judgment that was coming. He said, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You say, who are these people? Well, these are the the people who are maligning you for walking righteously. He says, you you continue to walk righteously and know that there's a day where God is coming. He's going to judge those who have died and those who are living. And the idea here is his wrath is coming and it's coming strong. You don't need to worry about that. Vengeance is mine. I'll repay. You give it to him. That's what he's talking about. In the sense here, even in... uh, uh, Chapter 4, verse 5 is that God is ready. He's prepared. He's fully clothed on the edge of His seat, ready to come and judge the world. He's ready. Almost at the door. And this fact of, of His coming judgment, of the coming end, ought to change the way that we live. And if you look there even in verse 7, therefore is the hinge word Based upon the end of all things coming, therefore, we need to live this way. Three exhortations, one in each verse. They'll form the outline to my message this morning. Verse 7 speaks about the call to prayer. Verse 8 speaks about the call to love. Verse 9 speaks about the call to hospitality. Each of these things should be present in our lives because of a future event that's coming. There's a day when the end of all things will come. And because of that day, we ought to live appropriately now. We ought to pray. We ought to love one another and show hospitality. Now, we're going to dig into each of these exhortations. But before we do, we need to spend a few moments thinking about um, Peter's expression here. The end of all things is near. Other translations say the end of all things is at hand. Similar when Jesus was walking. He said the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
It's the same word that Peter uses. The idea is the same. The end is coming. Now, at this point, there's a, a dilemma for us. The dilemma is this. It's been 2,000 years since he said this. And the end hasn't come. So, how do we understand that? Though Peter said the end of all things is near, hasn't come yet. What, what do you make of that? How can the end be near, being 2,000 years off? Well, some liberal theologians would be really quick to point out this is an indication Scripture is not true. See, Peter didn't know what he was talking about. He was mistaken. Thus, the Bible can't be trusted. That's what liberal theologians say. And I say there's a better way. There's a better way. Think, think first about Peter as he wrote these things. He knew fell well that the, the judgment wouldn't come any moment in his lifetime. He knew Christ wasn't going to return in his lifetime. Jesus made it very clear that he would live to an old age and die a cruel death. Listen to what he told Peter in John 21, verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wish, but now when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and somebody else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. And then John interpreted those words. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. Peter knew he was going to die. He knew he was going to die a cruel death. And as tradition has it, he was it was fulfilled when he was crucified upside down for his boldness in proclaiming the, the gospel of Christ. And as Peter wrote these words, he he may have realized, hey, my death is coming soon, and maybe maybe soon after my death, Christ will return. The end of all things beginning there. But you might ask, in what sense is it true that the end of all things is near? Well, I do think as you look through the Scripture, you get the sense that since Christ has come and, and been buried, crucified, dead, buried, and resurrected, right? it's, like, it's like the end times. We're living in the last days. We are right there. Paul describes what last days are like in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-6, through 6, 7, or 8. And it's remarkably similar to our days. It, it is close. We are... The present time in the in the last days. Since the days of Peter, we are living on borrowed time. The end is near. We need to realize that. Later in Peter's life, Peter made this clear of how near it was. He says, Second Peter chapter three. In fact, why don't you turn over there? Look at this. Second Peter chapter three, talking about the end. So I think maybe he gets to Second Peter and uh, he's saying, you know, I want to explain what I'm talking about when I say the end is near. He says in verse 7, By His Word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of destruction and judgment of ungodly men. God is keeping His world right now, reserving it for fire someday. And then He says, But don't let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. He just says, listen, it, it's near, but maybe it's not near like we think it's near. Maybe it's near like God thinks it's near. And he's, he's waited two days so far. And He's given us more time to repent. So He says in verse 9, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He's slow. He's waiting. He's waited two days until He comes. But the day of the Lord, he says, will come like a thief. Suddenly, in the heavens, will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. 
trust you see what Peter's saying. He says, the day of the Lord is coming. And at that day, the earth will meet its end. The, the heavens and the earth will be placed by new heavens and a new earth is exactly what he says. And the delay is the patience of God. He delays the final judgment to wait for people to repent, bring them into his kingdom. But it's also interesting here in Second Peter and in First Peter is that delay of judgment isn't merely a, a call for unbelievers to repent. It's a call for believers to live right. Look at how Peter continues here in verse 11. <clears throat> since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, since, since, since the end is coming, and, and since a destruction is going to be there, and all these things are going to be destroyed with, with intense heat, they'll be burned up, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, right? Seeing a future event should change the way we live today. That's exactly what Paul's saying. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Live in, in holiness. Live in godliness. Looking for that coming day when God will come and destroy all things, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to His promise, right, we're looking beyond the destruction. We're looking for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, right, we're, we're looking for the end. We know the end is near. It says, be diligent to be found in Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Right, as we look at these things, we anticipate them. What sort of people ought we to be? We had to walk in peace and spotless and blameless. You know, in other words, the, the return of Christ, the coming judgment, have ethical implications upon our lives. In fact, this is true of all prophecy. I know there are lots of people who are all interested in prophecy because they want to figure out all everything that's going to happen in the future, and they miss that. I, 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 I've not looked at this exhaustively, but I would guess. 100% of the time, whenever God predicts the future, it's always so that something changes today. Whether something's going to happen in the future so we can take comfort today. Something's happening in the future so we need to repent today. Something's happening in the future so we can have a hope of looking forward to it. It always has ethical implications. And if ever your study of prophecy is just to know the future, just to know the future so that you can know the future, you've missed the point of the prophecy. And what Peter says here, back in First Peter, you can turn back there, is that the end of all things is near. Any delay in the end is an expression of the kindness and patience of God. And so we need to live rightly in these last days. That's why my message this morning is entitled, Living in the Last Days. We are living in the last days. Now, I'm not telling you that Jesus is returning today. I'm not telling you that Jesus is returning in 2008 or even in your generation. I just say that the time is near just like Peter and God is patient. If anything else, the day today is nearer than it was when Peter wrote. If anything else, your days are soon to be ended. Scripture speaks about how our life is just a, it's a vapor. Your days are soon to be ended. The end needs to be on your mind. And every moment of every day, we're closer than we were before. I mean, think about right now. How close are we to that day? How close are we to that moment? Well, as close as we were then, we're closer now. As close as we are 
now or closer than we were then. And it just continues on and continues on. It's near and we need to live appropriately. First way to live. Three exhortations. Prayer. Verse 7. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. I summarize that we need to pray. In light of the end, we need to pray. Now, technically, the exhortation here isn't to pray. Technically, the exhortation here has to do with our mindset to prayer. Be a sound judgment, sober spirit. Let's just think about each of these things. Sound judgment. The Greek word here is sophroneo. Comes from the word it's talking about, about your mind. The idea carries about one who's controlled by his mind, and not his passions or not his emotions, but controlled by his mind. The great picture of that is Mark chapter 5. Mark records a trip that Jesus made to the country of the, the Gerasenes. In that country, there's a demon-possessed man entirely out of control. He lived among the tombs as a wild man. He wandered about without any clothes on. The, the city was, was concerned about him several times. They happened to capture him and they, they put him in, in chains and, and shackles. And he was so wild and so crazy that he broke the chains and he broke the shackles and was free then to roam all about the tombs. Terror captured those people who were in the city. In fact, so much. He was so crazy. Day and night he went about screaming and gnashing himself. And so much did he, he rule that graveyard there that nobody passed by that way. If you had to pass on the other side, you went way around the graveyard lest you encounter this wild and crazy and out of control man. And yet Jesus came into the region, cast a legion of demons out of the man, threw them into a herd of swine that eventually drowned the Sea of Galilee. People who saw it went and reported the town. The townspeople all come out and see what happens. And here's the testimony. When they came out, they, Mark 5.15, they observed that this man who had been demon-possessed sitting down clothed in his right mind. He was sitting down. He was clothed. Both those things were a miracle. And the fact then also that he was in his right mind was a third miracle. This right mind, sophronunta, he was thinking right. He had sound judgment. His mind was controlling him, not his lusts of his passions or not the demons in him or not anything else. He was in complete self-control. And that's the attitude that Peter says. Listen, in light of the end, be ruled by your mind. Be controlled in your mind when you're praying. Well, the second attitude to this, be of sober spirit. Or literally there it says, be sober. In many ways, this is exactly like the first term. Has has to do with our attention or mind. When you pay attention, it's the opposite of drunkenness, right? The, the drunk person is the person who's lost control of his mind. Lost perspective. Can't make right decisions. Can't walk right. Can't speak right. I'm not going to imitate a drunk for you up here this morning. I've seen plenty in my lifetime. You can think about how they're acting. Just out of control. That's why Proverbs 31 verse 10 says, Not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to desire strong drink, because wine will inhibit a king from making the proper decisions necessary to govern and rule well. Now, on several occasions, Peter used this word here in the epistle. Chapter 1, verse 13. Look back there. In every sense, it's meant to bring a seriousness to the Christian life. Chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, in light of the suffering that's coming, in light of the tribulation that you're bearing, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober. There it is. Keep sober. Keep alert. And fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
when, when life is difficult and you're facing your trials that are coming upon you, chapter 1, verse 6, and when you're being distressed, right, think rightly and think of the hope that's set before you. Don't be drunk. Don't have an out-of-control spirit. Have a self, spirit of self-control because there's danger in coming. The danger comes, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, of the devil. It's a famous verse. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan's on the hunt. He's looking for someone to eat. And he eats people who are drunk in their spirit, who aren't controlled. They just kind of let their mind go where they want to go. Don't be lulled into a false sense of security in your life. Disaster awaits you. Therefore, think about it. If you knew that disaster was coming, if you knew that there was a, a lion someplace, you would change your actions. You would be all alert. In fact, if I said, ladies and gentlemen, there's a lion behind that door and I'm going to open up and see where it is. Oh, your eyes would get real big and you'd be scared. Your mind would be fully engaged if you fully understood the lion back there, if you fully understood Satan and his activities. So Peter's saying, in light of the end, be of sober spirit. Listen, the realities of life are serious. It's no laughing matter. When you boil both of these attitudes down, they both have to do with a, a being alert, having an attention there, knowing what's going on. Yvonne told me something that took place Friday at this homeschool convention she attended. really gives help to this point here. So one of the speakers, the workshop was named Bob Schultz. Now, I know nothing about this guy except I have two books in my library. Boyhood and Beyond, Practical Wisdom for Becoming a Man. Created for work. <laughs> Practical Insights for Young Men. I'm going to be reading these with my son here over the next year or two or three because he needs to learn about work as any 11, 12, 13, 14-year-old boy needs to learn. Practical wisdom for becoming a man. I'm looking at some father-son time with him, talking about what it means he's becoming a man. I don't know anything about Bob Schultz except this. He's written these books. I've heard great things about him. Um, my sister also said that she went to a, a workshop. He, he was at this, this conference. And um, she was, he was doing a workshop and she saw him. said he was just a sweet, humble, gentle, godly guy. And my sister was really encouraged by this guy. Well, anyway... This past Friday, after one of his workshops, he collapsed the floor. Couldn't find a heartbeat. I assume some CPR was started. Called an ambulance, rushed off to the hospital. Now, that, that was happening amidst you know these thousands of people. Nobody knows much about that. But at some point, Yvonne was in this vendor hall. Lots of people, lots of commotion. Just picture the gym there, just packed. Bigger than the gym, probably? Bigger than the gym. Just packed with stuff and books and materials and people milling and... They're talking and figuring out what they want to buy. And someone came over to the overhead speaker and said, I have an announcement to make. I want everyone to be quiet. Listen to this announcement. I mean, that doesn't work very well at Cherryville Mall, does it? I mean, people are out busy doing their things. And, and they just kept saying, I have an announcement. Everyone needs to be quiet. You need to listen to this. Quiet. This is important. We need everybody listening. Can you please be quiet? And she said, after a while, people realized something serious was going on. And a, a, a settled hush came across the vendor hall. And this man made an announcement what happened to this Bob Schultz. At that point, Yvonne didn't know much. But then he prayed a prayer. And Yvonne described the prayer as very desperate and sobering. 
And she said that the whole prayer and, and room had a sobering effect upon the whole room. Because they didn't know all the details. They just knew something serious had happened if this man was going to pray like this. The next day it was announced he was in a hospital alive, but still unconscious. So I don't know what that means. If you collapse, you're still alive, but unconscious. It's just not good. But there's a, a soberness. Even in your heart and mind, isn't there a soberness now that, that comes upon you? See, when there's sobering news that come, there's something that gives us reason to, to be alert and to be alert in prayer. As we think of the end, as we think of the future day, we ought to be alert in prayer. Now, I'm so glad it's easy to be alert in prayer. Aren't you glad? Is it easy to be alert in prayer? It's not. I mean, when I think about my prayer life, my battles in prayer, my battle in praying is being alert. My mind drifts. I lose focus. I'm tired. I'm distracted. And so it was with Peter. When I think about Peter praying, I think about failure. Think about the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane. Jesus is there the night when Jesus betrayed. He, he takes His disciples, maybe 12 of them, 11 of them. You sit here. I'm going to go and pray. And He takes three of them. Peter and James and John. He brings them along and He sits them down here. He says, you stay here. I'm going to go pray. Listen to what Jesus said. He says, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. He said, remain here. Keep watch with me. Keep watch. Gregorius. Gregorio, oh, to, to be alert, right? Sober, sober-minded. Same idea. Jesus went a little beyond them, fell on His face, offered up to God prayers with loud crying and tears to the one able to save Him from death. And I'm sure these disciples had every reason to be sober in their spirit for the purpose of prayer. Here was their Master. In anguish, they'd never seen Him like this before. He was clearly distressed, going off, and certainly they could hear what he was praying because he was praying, as Hebrews 5, 8, 7 says, with loud crying and with tears. And yet, how did Peter respond in this moment? We had every reason to be alert and sober-minded. What happened to him? He fell asleep. In the hour of need, he failed to maintain a sober spirit. And it happened not once, not twice, but three times. Peter failed, fell asleep. So Peter isn't exhorting us here to things that he's an example of how to stay alert in prayer. He knows the failures and the difficulties. Just enjoy that rain. A future event, huh? Where's Alyssa? We got a party at our house. I don't know where she is. It'll be okay. Just gotta enjoy that, right? Well, here's Peter saying, Peter's saying there's importance in prayer. Keep sound judgment, sober spirit, because he knows he's failed. But you know, listen, if you keep the end in view, maybe that'll help. Keep the end of all things in view. And so I'm just asking you, as you think of your life, is it characterized by prayer? Is it characterized by a sober spirit? Is it characterized by sound judgment? Is it characterized by alertness? The antidote to that is thinking of the end. We need to pray. We need to pray. Second exhortation here comes in verse 8. We need to love one another. This also, I believe, flows from how the end of all things is near. 
He says, here, here's the most important thing. He says, verse 8, Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. There's a priority in these words, Peter says. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. It's a priority. In fact, this should probably be the greatest priority in your life. To be fervent in your love for one another. Throughout Scripture, we see the priority of love. Paul speaks in Colossians 3.14 puts forth an entire list of Christian virtues. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance. And he says, above all those, put on love. Love. Love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, demonstrates the priority of love. If I speak with the tongues of men of angels, do not have love. I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I don't care how erudite you are. I don't care how well you can speak. If you don't have love, you're zip. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, if I know everything there is to know, if I've memorized the internet, but I have love, I'm nothing. If I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing, right? You said if you have have faith, just a small grain of a mustard seed, you say that mountain, be moved and it'll be moved. But if I have all faith, I can move mountains at will because my faith is so great. But if you don't have love, zip. Nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed to the poor, if I give everything away, if I live in a tent, own nothing, so as to exhibit true religion, But if I don't have love, there's nothing. If I surrender my body to be burned, some translations say. If I I just give of myself, if I'm a martyr, but if I don't have love, nothing. Without love, all these things are nothing. The priority is love. When Jesus said, what's the greatest commandment? He says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then what did he say? He said, love your neighbor as yourself. This is top priority. When when Paul talked about his teaching, uh, 1 Timothy 1, verse 5. The goal of our instruction is love. What we're aiming at is love for the brethren. And I just say love for the brethren ought to be your greatest priority in life. Especially in light of the end. And I just say, is it? Do you love others in this body? Love for one another is primarily talking about love for the brethren. Love for the church. I just say, may the Lord convict your heart and help you to change where needed. Some of you do, maybe some of you don't. There's a priority of Peter's words. Also, there's an intensity to Peter's words. Above all, keep fervent. There it is. Intensity. Keep fervent in your love for one another. This is the same fervency mentioned back in chapter 1, verse 22. Peter said, Since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. Here it is. Fervently love one another from the heart. The idea here is that of, of stretching. Have a stretching love for others. Extend yourself. Go beyond what is comfortable. Don't merely settle for the easy and convenient thing. See that it costs you something. Do the hard thing over and over and over and over and over again with willingness and cheerfulness. That's what he's saying. Stretch yourself. And I think in terms of an example of this, we can do no better than the Apostle Paul. Paul stretched himself in his love. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 7-9, through 9, he says this, We prove to be gentle among you 
as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. And you know how a nursing mother needs to stretch to love a child. Late nights, up, child constantly with her. It's a, it's a stretching thing. And, and Paul said, I was like that with the church. I was like you, like a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. He said, I had so fond an affection for you that we're well pleased not to impart to you not only the gospel of God, which is huge, he said, but also our lives because you'd become very dear to us. We gave our lives to you. Everything that we were was yours because it was given to you. He says, you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, working night and day so as not to be burdened to any of you. We proclaim to you the gospel of God. That's stretching love. Giving completely. How well do you do that for others? To the Ephesian elders, he said this. You remember the story at Ephesus? He came in Ephesus, stayed there for three years, ministering to them, being among them. And then he left, and he's on his way to Jerusalem to be bound, maybe to be killed. And he stops at Miletus, calls the elders to him because he knows if he goes there, he loves them so much, he's going to get stuck there. But he's got to get to Jerusalem for Pentecost and he really wants to be there. And uh, so he calls these guys to the beach and talks to them and says words like this, You yourselves know from the first day I set foot in Asia how I was with you the whole time. I was serving the Lord with all humility and tears with trials which came upon me through the plot of the Jews. Just with them the whole time being right there in their midst. And he said, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. I've given it to you. I've given it to God. He says that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. When he said these things, he said a bunch of other things, but these are things of, of, of words of endearment. He knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they were to accompany him to the ship. That's stretching love. Something that says, I'm not going to see you again. And they wept for one another and they cried for one another because their bond of love was so strong. That's a stretching love. Another example comes in Philippians chapter 2. Verses 19 through 30. Okay, so I read this. It's a bunch of verses. I'm just going to read it. I want for you to listen to Paul's great love, not only for those in Philippi, but also for his fellow workers. He had a love for Timothy. He had a love for Epaphroditus. He had a love for the people in, in Philippi. And Timothy and Epaphroditus had love for these people. They just, just feel the love flowing all across this passage. Okay, this is stretching love. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. I want Timothy to be with you all so that you may be encouraged when I learn, so that I may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. <clears throat> for I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, but not of those of Christ. But you know of Timothy's proven worth. They serve me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his Father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself will be coming shortly. Right? Do you picture what's going on there? Paul has this bond with Timothy, considers him to be a father and a son. He served him night and day. And, and he needs him. But he's willing to let him go to Philippi. 
But he can't because he just absolutely has to has to be with them now. Maybe he's in prison. Maybe Timothy's feeding him. Maybe Timothy's helping him somehow. If Timothy goes, he'll starve. So he says, I have to have him. But, but listen, I want him to go to you. So as soon as he's freed up, he's going to send his most cherished guy to be with them. Because he loves them and he loves Timothy. And so what he does, he says, well, I'm going to send someone else. He thought I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus came probably with this letter. My brother... My fellow worker and fellow soldier who is your messenger and minister to my need because he was longing for you all and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. So here was Epaphras longing for those in Philippi. He was sick. They heard that he was sick and that distressed him. For indeed, he was sick to the point of death. But God had mercy on him and now not only him but also on me so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. So Paul would have had sorrow upon sorrow if Epaphroditus had died, and so he was merciful there because there was that bond of love, but he's also been merciful to the Philippians because they were so concerned about him. Therefore, I've sent him all the more eagerly so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less concerned about you. Receive him then, the Lord, with all joy and hold men like him in high regard because he came close to death for the work of Christ. Risking his life to complete was, was deficient in your service for me. Is that stretching love? I mean, that is stretching. That's the way the church ought to be. It's the way the body ought to be. Stretchingly loving one another and any lack is sin. What's amazing about the Apostle Paul, though, is you look, you look to see how he loved. He didn't just love those who returned their love. He loved wasn't only for those who loved him. I mean, even the Gentiles do that, Jesus said. Rather, Paul stretched himself to love those who weren't too fond of him. In his day, the church at Corinth had caused all sorts of grief to Paul. A ton of grief. They're sinful, self-focused. Many had turned against Paul, followed other leaders who had badmouthed Paul. So I'm going to follow this guy. Who is Paul? Criticized him. And listen to what Paul said to these Corinthians. He says, 2 Corinthians 12:15, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. What an amazing thing. That's stretching love. How could he do it? How could he have this stretching love? Well, the key comes in the last part of verse 8 here. Because love covers a multitude of sins. Had Paul covered a lot of sins in his day? A lot of sins of the Corinthians he covered. If you're looking for a hook, you might call this humility. The priority above all, the intensity, fervency, the forgiveness, humility. Right, perhaps Peter had in mind even here Proverbs 10, verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers a multitude of sins. So what he's saying, love but covers a multitude of sins. It's not saying atoning to them, it's just saying looking past them, forgiving them, going on. Maybe Proverbs 17, verse 9 was in his mind. He who conceals a transgression seeks love. There's a transgression. You can take it and expose it. You can just say, you know what, let's, let's just conceal that. It's done. It's forgiven. I'm going to carry on. Quite frankly, if you ever get to a point of stretchingly loving others in the church, you're going to see their sin. And you're going to see it big. And they will see your sin and they will see it big. 
And the only way to move forward is to let love do its work by covering a multitude of sins. My love for them covering their sins, their love for me covering my sins. But you know what? Even even it's bigger than that. It's not merely their sin against me that stops me from loving you. It's even my sin against you that stops me from loving you. Because I know the hatred that's stirred up in my heart to sin against you in those ways. And it's humility that confesses my sin and seeks to love you regardless. You need the same way. You need humility to get past your sin to me or your sin to other people. And that's where the majority of church problems arise. Sins are committed. Love fails to cover them. Love fails. Bitterness arises. When bitterness arises, there's unity in the church. The unity of church, massive problems. And the church of Christ knows it all too well. But the reason, let's think about it. The reason they know it too well is because love comes and there's a stretching love, a genuine love. And, and they miss that third point of the equation. They're doing well at loving each other fervently, but the third point is the humility that will cover the sins committed. I mean, if you want to have an easy church life, you just say, you know what, I'm not going to be involved. I'm just going to go and see and stay on the outside and keep everyone's hands distance. Then you won't have to deal with covering sins because you won't get close enough to have anybody transgress against you. But when you stretchingly love, you need to have this next step of humility in love overlooking sins. It's the spirit of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 13. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Right? When you sin against, love will bear it. Love will overcome evil with good. When you sin against, love will believe all things. They know not what they do. Right? You, you believe the best. When you sin against, love will hope all things. Things are, are bad now maybe, but, but they'll turn out better. When you sin against, love will endure all things. Listen, it's, it's hard. But I'm going to endure it in love. Well, point number one, pray. Number two, love one another. Finally, number three, love strangers. This comes in verse 9. Love strangers. Reads this, Be hospitable to one another without complaint. And you look at that verse, you say, Love strangers. Where do you get that from? It says, Be hospitable. Well, the Greek word here, hospitable, is a combination of two Greek words. Philos, which means love, and xenos, which means stranger. Right? Philos, xenos, love, strangers. Philoxenos, philoxenos is the word. It means love, strangers. And when we hear the word hospitality, as this word is translated, we're thinking about having our friends over to our home. Let's open our home. Let's have hospitality. Come on by. Oftentimes, it's the husband who has the gift of hospitality and the wife who has the work of hospitality is how it works. But that's okay. And that's good. And I encourage you to do this. I encourage you to be hospitable in this way. I encourage you to have lots of church people at your house. But you know what? That's point two. Love one another. We're on point three. Loving strangers. See, because when Peter's listeners heard these words, they would have thought about having strangers in the home to spend the night. In Peter's day, there weren't many hotels, and those that existed were hotbeds of sin, oftentimes. Traveling was dangerous and hard, and you can be exposed to many evils in those days. So when Christians traveled, they tried to avoid these places and took advantage of the networks of Christians across the land and 
through mutual acquaintances or some sort of way in which they know they'd secure lodging with other Christians, even though they're entire strangers. Just how it works. I mean, think about how tough it is. Somebody's coming into town, finds a pastor of a church, says, you know, we need a place to stay, me and my family, my five kids, I need some place to stay. And they say, well, go, go down the street. There's somebody there. I think they'll help you out. You can easily see how Peter says, do it without complaint, right? Because you're, you're at home, relaxing, enjoying, looking forward to a, a nice evening <clears throat> in front of the fire, whatever. And without warning, here comes a knock. You open the door and you see this family of people. They explain that, yeah, I'm part of the church of Thessalonica. We're on our way to Corinth. And I heard that you all are Christians, fellow believers, and just wondering if we can stay here. Would that be hard? It's tough. It's difficult. And yet those in Peter's day were called to do this on a regular basis. It's easy to see. Don't do it without complaint. Do it joyfully. Do it cheerfully. Now, obviously, this this practice isn't done today. In some sense, thank goodness. In some sense, maybe we've missed out on an opportunity to show love for strangers. But there are ways that we can show love to strangers. I think the most obvious and simple and straightforward way to apply this is this of, of welcoming visitors in the church body. People come in, you don't know who they are. Do unto others you would have them do unto you. Visiting church is a difficult thing. It's hard. I see a couple of visitors here today. It's a hard deal. And love, though, is seek to help people feel comfortable greeting them, shaking their hands with them, sitting with them. Right? You see them. I know as a pastor, I'm real sensitive to that. If I see someone coming in as a visitor and like no one's talking to them, it's really hard. And oftentimes I will stop a conversation, maybe rude to you all, just to reach out, just to try to help somebody with that. But love will do that. Maybe love will explain, well, there's a nursery down there and explain about children's notes and, and how things work here at Rock Valley Bible Church. That's what visiting does. Well, you know, I think about this. Do you love strangers? I heard someone describe, well, I was talking to somebody, sort of newer to the church, and um, I said, do you know so-and-so? And they said, well, no, I don't know them. It's a big church, is their perspective. I don't think we're such a big church. But there may be somebody here that you don't know very well. Are there? Raise your hand if there's someone here that you don't know very well. Just look around, look around. All right, all right, great, great, great. You know what? I want to apply my message here. I want to maybe show you it's not so painful, it's not so hard. I got an assignment for you. You just look around and you just say, you know, who's somebody in this room that maybe, maybe I've seen them, I recognize them, but you know what? If you can't come up with their name, it's not good enough. You don't know them well enough. Alright? So you can maybe identify somebody here. This is your chance, okay? Without embarrassment, that you come up to somebody and say, um, what, what's your name? And you get a name and you can kind of give name back and share it back. And just to, just to, have to try to promote conversation here for a little bit, to extend love to a stranger. Here's an easy question I thought maybe would be really good. Ask, ask that person, you didn't know their name, ask them if they grew up in a Christian home. Okay? And if you don't know whether they live, grew up in a Christian home or not, you don't know them well enough. That's a real simple thing. You just know a little bit of their background uh, and easy like that. Okay? So what I want to do in our message, I want to just break for five minutes Want you before don't complain, all right? (laughs) 
I want you to figure out someone now. So maybe, maybe right now, before I say break, figure out someone now. You say, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go after that person, all right? I want you to love strangers, all right? Does everyone have someone in mind? Someone not have someone in mind yet? We'll, we'll wait for you. Visitors, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. You're, you're going to be buried. But you know what? It's, it's practice for us to get better at this thing. And uh, we need to show love to strangers. So here's what I want to do. I want to take, what time is it? Boy, three minutes, five minutes, and then I'll tell a story and we'll finish. All right? So here, break for whatever, three, five minutes, and we'll come right back. So. And I think, is this your sister? This is, this is my it is. sister, June. Okay. Oh, she beat you. Okay. Good. She is going to get bombarded. That's okay. She is a visitor today? Yeah. Yeah, so so good. So obviously, I'm Steve. Did you grow up in a Christian home? You did. Great. Obviously, you did. I knew that answer, actually. Great So good. Yeah, okay, good. 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 Great. And you didn't grow up in a Christian home, as I remember, because you're converted at University of Iowa. Yeah, right? I was like a teenager. Okay. Good. Well, nice to have you. And you're here for how long? I'm sorry? How long are you here for? From Wednesday. Okay. Next weekend she's gonna be. We weren't supposed to be here this week, but things changed. Okay. So that's why we're here. Okay. Okay, great. Thank you. <clears throat> All right, that's very good. Uh, what's your name? I mean, Gus. <laughs> All right, let's come back together here. This is. Uh, We can uh, come back together. All right. We can come back together. I have an important announcement to make. I need to make everything all quiet. Everybody, please pay attention. Oh, it is going to work. It is going to work. Here we go. Come back together. Everybody. Come back together. We need to have you sit down. Don't want to interrupt conversations there. Come on together. Uh, all right. Yeah, I think that's like one of the best fellowship times we've had in a long time, huh? <laughs> Is that good? Thank you. Was it fun? Uh, what, what are those things? I don't know who this person are. Finally had a chance without... Uh, how many of you met someone you generally... You didn't even know their name. How many of you met people like that today? Wonderful. Wonderful. And uh, that's loving strangers. And I just encourage you to do that week in, week out at Rock Valley Bible Church. And, um, you know, if you need an excuse, maybe you can say, remember that time Steve preached a message? You know what? I don't know your name. <laughs> but do it. And just I, I'd encourage you, when you come here, have a heart that wants to, to reach out and love towards other people. All right? Well, here's my story. Last Sunday we had a visitor come to our church. His name's Patrick. Gordy Bell greeted him at the door said something like this, how you doing? That's what Gordy says, right? How you doing? And uh, he said something like terrible. 
been like the worst time of my life. How do you respond to that? I don't know exactly what Gordy did, but he was he was back here. And uh, I saw him kind of come in. I didn't know who he was. Maybe some of you saw him last week. He had a baseball cap on. And I know Dan Herman, you were talking to him back there. I don't know all the extent of the conversation you had. But I think, Doug, maybe you befriended him a little bit too. And these men, Doug and Dan particularly, I just want to lift them up and hold them up and just say, you know what, model. Model what they did. They loved this stranger. After service, he stayed for potluck. And I was able to to figure out what happened in his life. He's moving from Eau Claire to Peoria. I don't know all the circumstances behind his life. The process of driving down. He's got some family here in Rockford, so maybe he's stopping off here in Rockford for a little bit. But his car broke down. I think it was on Friday. I don't know where he was, but he had to call the shop, call the tow truck. They came and they, they towed his car to the shop, fixed it Friday. So it's Saturday, right? And so Saturday is out and about and blows a tire. And says, oh man, he's down his luck a little bit financially. Things are difficult. It's pretty tight. He said, I didn't have enough money to pay for another tow truck. So he called the company. He said, could you bring the tire out here to me? Because I don't want to, you know, be towed. And so they brought a tire out to him. They go to put it on and they can't get the tire off the car because it rusted onto the car. So he get towed anyway. So by this time it's Sunday. I'm not sure what exactly it was, but... It was Sunday, uh, maybe planning to head out to Peoria just in the afternoon. He's going west on State Street, right down here near the, the clock tower. He's heading west on State Street, okay? And then State Street and uh, Bell School is a red light. He slams his brakes, and uh, nothing happens. He's like, whoa! And so he turned right on Bell School Road. And so he's, she's going north on Bell School Road. <laughs> and uh, he's coming up here to Guilford, and uh, same thing. Car in front of him, red light, slam, and I was like, he drives right in. And he comes to Rockford Christian High School. He drives in. <laughs> he drives in. It was like 10.05 when he drove in. And he's kind of coming back there and um, finds out there's a church service. I don't know all the details. I'm, I'm guessing he probably thought about leaving. Did you encourage him to stay, Dan? I, I don't know what it was. But uh, one of the things when I was sitting there eating with him, he said, boy, this food tastes good because I've not eaten since yesterday noon. So I think maybe he stayed for the meal. I'm not exactly sure. He said he hadn't taken a shower for quite some time. I'm not sure if it was a day or two days or, or what it was. Hadn't eaten, was hungry. And he, he commented about how good the service was for his soul. Remember what I preached on last week? What? <laughs> Who can give me a title of my message last week? Sean, what's the title of my message last week? Yeah, get ready to suffer. Be prepared to suffer. Same thing. That's good enough. You got the spirit of it. That's, get ready to suffer. And uh, he said, when I sat down here lunch after uh, the service, he said, boy, I, uh, I'm doing a lot better now than I was. It's a message of suffering. I'm not sure he's a Christian. He's grown up in Christian church. Um, but after the service, Doug took off. I don't know all the details, Doug, but went and bought him breaks. And... Uh, we used to set up, just a few of us left over because Doug was out with him, Gordy was out with him, really talked with him, loved this stranger, came back and right out here in the parking lot, made the parking lot a garage shop, tried to repair his brakes, couldn't get the wheels off of uh, his van, so couldn't really put the brakes on, but they got, they get one on maybe, so at least, at least one brake out of four, at least if he drives slow, he'll be okay. But uh, he spent several hours with him. I don't even know how the story ended. 
you have any update on how the story ended, Doug? The only thing that I, I would add is that he, he had a family here in town, and he did want to call him. Uh, he had a couple children, an ex-wife, and a relationship with Crane. Uh, but in the end, when we couldn't actually fix the vehicle, and Corey and I both had some pretty decent opportunities to talk to him about the past relationship with him. But uh, we advised him, we were willing to tow him to Peoria. Hmm. And uh, at that point, I think that he was, like, he didn't want to, he thought that was too much. So he ended up calling his daughter, and uh, he was last we knew we were, he was heading to his daughter, his daughter, his daughter, his daughter. Yep. So I had to Could be the sovereign timing of God, make the reconcile a relationship there through sufferings. Well, the reason I didn't call Doug is because Doug would have said, don't share that on a Sunday if I had talked to him before, because that's just how Doug is. But I'm saying, Doug, that's a great encouragement to us to see how you love strangers. And I just say this, love strangers. Love strangers. Visitors of the church, People come in, just, just love them. It's what Paul tells us to do, especially, Peter tells us to do, especially in light of the end. So there's my story. Let me finish in prayer and we'll be dismissed. Lord, I pray you take these words into our heart. May we as a church be a praying church. May we be a church that loves one another. May we be a church that loves strangers who come into our midst. Help us in these days, God, to be those to follow after your, your word. It's only because of Christ. It's only because of Christ. None of these things merit anything. It's not that our prayers merit anything. It's not because we love that we are so good in your sight, God, but we love because you have first loved us and died for us the cross and has redeemed us as we sang today of your wonderful grace, as we sang of our Redeemer and standing amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned and unclean. So in that, Lord, we do rejoice. Help us, us on, to be the church that you would desire us to be. Pray in Christ's name. Amen.